Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 44, All Good Things, where we will be looking at chapters 86 through 87 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Lifting the Veil. For those of you who are new here, maybe the end of the book isn't where you want to start, but you do you. So if you need an explanation, here you go. Each week on this podcast, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens, figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for most of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. <laughs> and of course, we have our usual disclaimers. So first of all, before we begin, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, as always, we're open to that changing if somebody wants to get on the horn with us. Second of all, our discussions will naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're just happy to go along with the flow and discover things as they come out, and you enjoy knowing the future. We're cool with that. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. So with that out of the way, it's time to move into our 45-second recap. It's my turn this week. Rhyming couplets. Yes, that means rhyming couplets. Phoenix, do you have a timer ready? Do I ever have a timer ready? Sometimes. Do you think I have a timer ready now? You're looking at me. Well, it, that's just the, the prompt. I mean, uh, through the magic of editing, you will. No, I'm leaving it all in. <laughs> well, crap. Alrighty. In, if anyone wants to know why I'm doing this, it is because last episode, Will was a bit of an imp. Five, four, three, two, one, go. With Kvothe on the horns, the masters hand down their sentence but revoke the expulsion with scorn while keeping additional penance. So Kvoth comes out ahead with a heavier purse and a promotion that Elodin led, which doesn't make the lashing worse. Elodin explains that Rilar means speaker. While listening to the sleeping mind, Kvoth's inhibitions grow weaker, as his friends will soon find. Arya and Kvoth have a meeting in the underground underthing where Kvoth finds wonders fleeting before surprising interjecting. 29.10 seconds. Yes! No cherries for me. Nope. Nope. No cherries for you. That's okay. They're out of season now. <sighs> I love this time of year. No cherries. Colors on the leaves. Cooler weather. Wind. Rain. Clouds. Fog. Frost. <clears throat> Perfect time to go and reread or re-listen to this book. Yeah, the section definitely has a nice autumnal feel to it. I'm always here for that. So does the beginning of the book. I just re-listened to the beginning of the book, and I have thoughts, which we will discuss after we finish up the book and do a episode one redux, if you will. Indeed. So for our lens, we chose Lifting the Veil. And in many ways, that's how I view this particular section. Kvothe's understanding of the world is changed by his experience speaking the name of the wind and then the way Elodin explains the difference between that sleeping mind and waking mind. And I think that explanation also worms its way into the way Kvothe starts experiencing other things, as we'll discover. So, starting with chronological events, last time, as we left off, Quoth found out that he was getting expelled. He was also getting lashed, but that's right, expelled. His life was over. And, yeah, that's a dramatic sentence right there. I mean, it is figuratively over if he's expelled, but not literally. And I can't blame him for being a little bit freaked out by it, especially when he didn't even know what he did. That is true. Not having a true comprehension of what you did to earn your punishment 
it'll mess you up. And then almost perfunctorily, the masters decide that they will overturn the expulsion. Well, first off, it's Elodin who says, I have a problem with the expulsion. And then as if he was expecting something, the chancellor opened the floor for further discussion from any of the masters. And Elodin just steps right up and says, I'm promoting you to Rolar. It almost feels like expulsion is almost part of the ritual of becoming Rolar. <laughs> like, that's the feeling that I got here. Oh yeah, we do this to everyone. It's kind of a fun little game that we play. <laughs> we make you shirt your pants and then <laughs> <laughs> promote you. Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> and knowing just how Elodin works, it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually the case. You know, here's the other funny thing. Like, every time someone has threatened Quoth with expulsion on the horns, he's ended up getting promoted. Yes. You know, last time we said that we weren't sure why Will and Sim took Quoth to Kilvin's office. You know, Kilvin's the one that sponsored him to Alir. That's probably why, yeah. He bears responsibility for him. He's Quoth's advisor. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> And, I mean, let's face it, Kilvin is a reasonable authority figure who knows Quoth and cares for Quoth's well-being and respects him, so... Yeah, it makes sense. And then he traded up? It's a lateral move at best. Right. <laughs> if you want to get into the whole mythic hero being business, Elodin is pretty good because he tends to enjoy that sort of madcap tomfoolery. Much more so than Kilvin. Yeah, Kilvin is a lot more measured. And then, to make matters even sweeter for Kvothe, Ambrose is there to witness all of this, and he's just, what? 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 Yeah, I mean, at this point, Ambrose has been living for schadenfreude, and it's kind of bitten him in the butt. I'd say, yeah. So, <laughs> Ambrose scampers off after Hem, trying to figure out what just happened. And Elodin comes over to Kvothe and just says, Confused? And I think, frankly, Elodin would be disappointed if Kvothe wasn't confused. Yep. <laughs> Come walk with me. I'll explain. Spoiler warning. He didn't really explain. But he does bring us to this explanation of the sleeping mind and the waking mind, which is something that I think really throws a pretty sharp relief onto many of Quoth's biggest successes. They typically happen when he's not thinking, when he's not overthinking things, when he's simply observing things and then taking action based on that. And I think this is kind of like the difference between the noumenal and the phenomenal world, as Immanuel Kant would put things. The noumenal world is the world as it actually is, the actual reality. And then the phenomenal world is the world as we experience it through our transcendental unity of the apperception, which is basically like this great big waffle iron. If you think of reality as the batter, the waffle iron orders that batter and solidifies it into something that is nice and crispy and wonderful. But that raw batter is what makes it up and what actually is there. Our minds organize it into something that we can experience and consume. That's really how I look at that waking mind. Now the problem with your waking mind is it's a waffle iron. It turns everything into a waffle shape. That's the only thing it can do. Put an egg in it. It's a waffle. Pretty much, yeah. Will it waffle? Yep, you betcha. It has a way of disguising things that might actually be buried or hidden. So this sleeping mind that Elodin is talking about is absorbing the batter without your waffle iron. Put a cinnamon roll in it. It's now a waffle. A very delicious waffle. What else can you put in a waffle iron that becomes a delicious waffle? Pizza. Leftover pizza is actually really good in a waffle iron. Also, like, sandwiches. 
grilled cheese sandwich, super tasty. Ooh. Yeah. Anyway. So, in this case, that division between noumenal and phenomenal is getting pierced by Kvothe's mind. He's starting to be able to access this noumenal world, this world as it is, without having to think about it. He's able to do it on purpose. At least that's the goal. I think part of it is also opening him up to wonder. And so the thing that brought that to my thought was when Ari takes him down into the under thing. Initially, he's been thinking, oh, I, I got to find a way into the archives from under here. But instead, when he's first brought down there, all of that goes away. And he is just appreciating the under thing for what it is and the wonders that are actually there, not for what he thinks he can gain from them. He's appreciating it for itself. And I think that's that mindset shift that Elodin is trying to instill in him. That ability to appreciate things for what they are and then go from there. And once you understand the thing as it truly is and appreciate it as it is, then you can change it. Then you can make it do what you want. Yeah, he's in that instant living in the present in a way that we haven't really seen Kvothe do in quite some time. For as many wondrous things as Kvothe has seen, can you think of another instance where he's just appreciated the stuff just for its own existence, as opposed to just what it can do for him? Not recently. Not since he was a child and not since he was in a haze back my favorite episode, episode eight, where he's just experiencing and not processing. Yeah. Well, and that's when he's starting to just experience things through music and he's using his lute to express the feeling of a leaf spinning in the wind, you know, things like that. I think that's really evocative. And that's, I think, also something to be said where he talks about how his mind went to sleep, his waking mind went to bed, and it was his sleeping mind that was doing most of the driving during that phase of his life. He even says that his mind was beyond the doors of sleep in the last chunk that we read. So that really powerful sleeping mind that he has is guiding him there. And I also think that when you're a child, it's a lot easier for you to observe things as they are as opposed to how you want them to be because you don't have this concept of how things are supposed to happen, how things are supposed to be. It's kind of like how it's easier to learn new skills, new languages when you are a child than it is when you are an adult. Because let's take the difference between English and Spanish or pretty much any Romance language. The verb and noun order is different. Yeah. As an English speaker, I've had a lifetime of grammatical structures hounded into my brain about how sentences fit together and how letters form words and what sort of sounds they make. And then when you take something like, say, French or Spanish, French especially from the pronunciation perspective, <laughs> where you have things that completely go against that, it's a massive effort as an adult to overcome that. However, kids, because they don't have these ideas about how things ought to be, they don't know what a sentence is supposed to be, they can build a sentence structure that fits. So they can build a compartment for French, for pronunciation and sentence structure, and they can build a compartment for English for pronunciation and sentence structure. But yes, that description of Elodin as childlike is telling. He's oftentimes described as having an almost childlike sense of wonder about him. Like he's looking at everything with fresh eyes for the first time. It's notable that everyone considers that childlike behavior to be a sign that Elodin is cracked. Part of it is because Elodin is in many ways still very childlike, specifically in how much he cares for a lot of the social structures and conventions of the world around him. Because he recognizes that they are completely artificial. And he only observes the ones that 
benefit him or that he chooses to. Or that spark joy in him. Exactly. And if something doesn't, he just ignores it. I don't like the implication that if you don't conform with what is expected of you, what is expected of an adult, that you are in some way crazy and or deficient. Because as we have recently rediscovered, there are certain parts of being an adult, in quotation marks, that just don't work for our specific set of neuroses. Ain't that the truth. I think the key here is Elodin is childlike, but he is not childish. Because he understands enough of the adult world that any structures that he rejects, he does so knowingly and with intention. Childish is to reject a structure because you don't know any better. And you don't want to know any better. Elodin is truly aware of all of these things, and he is aware of exactly what they mean and exactly how much they mean. And so when he rejects them, it is a conscious choice as opposed to just an act of ignorance. I think the goal should always actually be to be childlike as opposed to childish. Um, I think it is good to be childlike. It's a state where you are able to make decisions that are good for your inner child as opposed to childish, which is just sort of this willful rejection of wanting to even know what the options are. To be childlike is to say, tonight I will have chicken nuggets and chocolate milk. To be childish is to say, I will only ever have chicken nuggets and chocolate milk. Honestly, occasionally we make tater tots into a kind of hash brown situation in the waffle iron call them tot waffles you know sometimes having fun and playing with your food it's good for you yeah <laughs> Elodin gets that and here he's trying to convince Quoth to do the same now I like something that we learn more about Elodin it's that he first called the wind when he was told by Elksadal that he was too young to learn advanced bindings because he was a 14-year-old kid at the university. So kind of thinking about current analogs almost to that, Ronan Farrow went to college at age 11. Can you imagine being an 11-year-old or a 14-year-old and trying to fit in or not fit in because you're not going to fit in with college students? But just trying to find a niche. Just trying to find some peace. Find some place where you belong. That would be tough. I mean, you're going through so many changes already at that age. And then to be forced into a scenario where you're living by yourself for the first time. If you are, I don't think that you are when you're that young. Your parents probably still have you at their home. Yeah, that's true. And you just go to school there. Yeah, fair enough. But still, like, you definitely know that all of your peers are going to be completely different from you. And your teachers are going to have very different expectations of their students from what teachers would have at, say, a middle school or even a high school level. Also, though, they're going to have a completely different set of expectations for you than every other student. Yeah, and that's a really tricky balance to find. But Elksadal made Elodin so angry that he called the wind, which means that, by all rights, Elodin was probably brought up on the horns for calling the wind. Quite probably. To hear Elodin tell it, it's a fairly common occurrence here. <laughs> like, some kid gets angry, and next thing you know, they're calling out wind or fire or iron or whatever and just having a bit of a temper tantrum and then not knowing what happened and then next thing you know okay yeah we'll we'll go through a, a token punishment but congratulations kid you're promoted okay but whipping is not a token punishment that is true and that's something that sim calls out which i really appreciate his first words are that's barbaric 
which brings to mind the Adem and how the Adem view anyone from outside of the Adem. Barbarians. Yes, to use the uh, the accent that Nick Podell uses. Yes. Sim is someone who is very much of the establishment. He comes from a wealthy family. He has lived a fairly comfortable life. And he's recognizing here where the system is failing. This is failing his friend. This is treating him unjustly. Even as Willem is saying, I mean, there has to be some sort of consequence. Sim is saying, no, there may need to be consequence, but not this. This is unjust, it is cruel, and unusual. Which is another point that Denna brings up later. Except the way that she brings it up to Kvothe is, you cannot judge me for what I am willing to take if you are willing to take whipping to stay in your school. Yeah. Kvothe is in an uncomfortable place, and I think part of that is because as much as the system victimizes him, he doesn't really understand that this is the way the system was designed. He also thinks he is, but doesn't really challenge the system. Yeah, he challenges people that he thinks are, quote, bad apples, without wondering how did the system come to nourish these particular bad apples and make it so that they became the norm as opposed to an exception. The next thing out of Quoth's mouth, does this mean I can get back in the archives? <laughs> Naturally. It's a logical question to ask. And what I love is that Elodin is just like, uh-uh, <laughs> nope. The archives are Lauren's domain. Those are not my secrets to spill. Right. Elodin is smart here in recognizing the limits of what his grace can confer. Quoth goes on and says, well, then will you at least tell me what's beyond the four-plate door? <laughs> I love Elodin's response to that. Well, you don't go for the small secrets, do you? <laughs> I want to point out what Elodin says and kind of focus on it a little bit. Valeritas. God, I can still remember what it was like standing down there looking at the door, wondering. Merciful Telu, it almost killed me. Staring at the door almost killed him? Or the door almost killed him? Or what was beyond the door almost killed him? Or just the anticipation. What almost killed him? I want to know. But to put a cap on this, since you are a Rolar now, I will admit that the door exists. <laughs> so what, before he's a Rolar, all of the masters would just gaslight him and tell him, what door? I can neither confirm nor deny that there's a door. I can neither confirm nor deny that this thing that you have seen with your own eyes exists. On the advice of my attorney, I have declined to speak about this. <laughs> yes, Mr. Rules Lawyer. <laughs> Attorney at Rules Law. I still remember the D&D game. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. As your attorney, I would like to remind my client that he has a five-foot step that he is entitled to without provoking an attack of opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Let me remind the DM that my client <laughs> has, in fact, fire immunity. <laughs> a little bit further down the page... There's a discussion about names. The nature of names cannot be described. And Elodin says, describe blue. Yeah, it's really tough to do without referring to something that bears the quality of it. Whether that is your sweatshirt or the sky, sometimes. <laughs> not right now. Or your headphones or what have you. But I haven't actually described the quality of it. I've just described things that have it. You haven't described it. Yes. Words are pale shadows of forgotten names. If you think of a name as something that is given, words are also a thing that is given to describe an object. Bed frame, closet door, headphones, things that I am staring at, a guitar. 
the sound of a word can adjust your feeling towards that word or that thing. So many people hate the word moist. So many people. I won't say it again. Very sorry. There are sounds that evoke certain emotional reactions. As names have power, words have power. There is an alternate view of this that I'd like to point out. We cover our swear words on the podcast because we don't want to have to click the little illicit button, but also it's fun, man. We like using the good place convention when it comes to swear words. It is a little nod to something that we love that shares a little bit of our ethos, philosophy. We hope to bring a little bit of it into this pod. The Good Place is very much about philosophy. But words in and of themselves do not have meaning inherently. We've given them meaning. At some point, someone pointed at a cat and said cat. That is now a cat. And somebody else pointed at a cat and said gato. That is what it is. Now, that's not really how it happened. Words evolve and come from other languages and what have you. And there's common roots. But we assigned a word to the thing. Words have the power we've given them. Certain swear words have certain power over certain people. Certain swear words matter more in different countries. Same language, different country, different attitude. And different cultural expectations associated with them. I do like the imagery in my head now of using words to talk about words is like using a pencil to draw a picture of itself on itself. That's taking the Escher sketch just a little bit further than is possible, but yes. It does have that sort of recursive feel to it. It's sort of like imagining what the challenge is to describe uniquely visual concepts to someone who has never been able to see. How would you describe a color, for instance? Because it doesn't have a tactile feel to it, and it doesn't have a smell to it or a taste, and there's no sound to the color. So the concept of blue would be something that you would have a very hard time describing. Or at least accurately, not describing, but getting the understanding, like your understanding of what blue is to another person that couldn't see. Yeah. Next chapter. I have a question for you. Okay. What is the name of this chapter according to your book? My book says it's winter. My book says boldness. Neither one of these are good names for this chapter, I'm going to say. I agree with you. However, what got me to think about this is when Kvothe is talking with Ari, Ari says wisdom precludes boldness. There's nothing in here whatsoever that evokes winter to me, but there's at least the word boldness. There is that. I'll give you that. So on the names of things, does the chapter name being different make your perception of the chapter any different? A little bit. So when I read it, reading it as winter, I'm sitting here imagining the world that they're inhabiting getting colder and darker, both retreating underground with Ari to discover this other world that she lives in. You know, the owls seeking haven from the snow, things like that. And when I have the chapter name of boldness, the parts of the chapter that I pick up on are about wisdom and boldness and Kvothe's willingness to ask Ari a question that he was initially afraid to ask because he didn't know how she would respond. But let's go ahead and talk about Sim and Will for now. Yeah, so... As we've discussed earlier, Sim immediately calls out the barbarism of the society that they're living in. That the whipping punishment is wholly unjust and cruel. I'm also really struck by Kvothe's response to this, which is to say, I love you, Sim. I was going to mention that. Because 
I think Sim is like a breath of fresh air. He has a moral compass that can be trusted where our protagonist does not. Sim is the person who thinks about others. Again, unlike our protagonist, he cares about the well-being of others and it affects him. Here is also Quoth admitting love for a friend, which is something that is not something you see very often in a lot of fantasy novels. You especially don't see this between men. Exactly. And we presume that both Quoth and Sim are cis and heterosexual. Both of them have dated and or have been infatuated with women and there's no indication of them being infatuated with men. So I'm going with that assumption. It's really nice to see non-toxic portrayals of love between two men. It's very important. I think also just thinking about how we as men show affection to one another because everyone needs that. It's important. One thing I absolutely love is when you are around two specific friends, the first thing that happens is that you hug them, each of them, for what may be considered by some people an uncomfortably long amount of time. I think at first it kind of started as a way between you and one specific friend to make both me and his wife mildly uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not going to say there wasn't some of that. Right. But I think as time went on, it just became a thing that you guys did because you both genuinely care about one another. This is also true. The person in question is one of my dearest friends. And even though it's been almost two years now since I've been able to see him, you know, I still really care deeply about him and his well-being and, you know, how he and his family are doing. And I love him. The other one that I was referring to has been a lifelong friend of yours. And I absolutely adore him also. That just the friendship between the two of you is just so pure and cute. Yeah, the two of us can pick it up at any time. And we both come into that friendship knowing exactly who the other person is. We know one another's foibles and there is no judgment or anything like that. We're able to be 100% ourselves around one another. And there's no need to fear. It's a safe space. The next few pages, as we've talked about already a little bit, are about Ari. Quoth is almost a different person with Ari. He's more gentle. He is more patient. He's more apologetic for doing things that bother her. One of the things that I noticed here when he finally asks her a question, and I think this is something that is different from his pre-wind calling. So before, he almost never asked a question that he didn't already know the answer to with anyone. And now he is asking a question because he genuinely is curious how she will respond and what she will respond with. Because he genuinely wants to know what she will say. He's actually curious in a way that he really hasn't been for the rest of the book. Before asking that question, a few things to note. She gave him a sunny smile. I don't think that she is a direct metaphor for the moon any longer. I really do get that sunny feeling from her. Which would explain her aversion to the moon because they're seldom in the same sky together. Quoth brings a bottle of honey wine, I think to soften her up, to lower her inhibitions. And she asks, what's in it? Sunlight and a smile and a question. And the question is only after they've drunk the whole bottle. Because it's at the bottom. And as for Ari, I brought you a ring. It was made of warm, smooth wood, and it keeps secrets. Rings exist 
in the wise man's sphere in the form of the court rings. There's rings of bone, silver, and gold. And the only other time that we've seen a ring of wood is when Meluin Lackless gives both one as a rebuke. Will is looking up specifics. A ring of wood was used in the past to call servants much below your status. Although some servants were offended to receive a ring of wood while a fellow servant received a ring of iron, the tradition passed. Now sending someone a wooden ring exclusively is used as a grave offense, showing that such a person is considered inhuman and beneath contempt. So one of the things that is oftentimes overlooked about a medieval society is the role that servants played in terms of secret keeping. Like if you were to think of a meeting between two noble houses hatching some sort of plot, everyone imagines that this is taking place in some sort of sealed room where there's nobody there. But there is usually, almost always, multiple other people who are there. There are the servants who are taking care of their food, who are taking care of their beverages, who are taking care of cleaning, who are just tidying up around the place. And now the nobility, being the nobility, viewed their servants as lesser, as being subhuman, what have you. But that didn't mean that those servants didn't absorb all of those secrets that they were around, that they heard, that they may have passed on. So yeah, I would imagine that if you were a servant, if you were trusted enough to be seen as invisible, like that actually conveys a deep level of trust and a level of secrecy. Someone would probably say things in front of someone who they viewed as inhuman that they would never say around someone they viewed as their equal or superior. So yeah, there's secrets there. Reminds me a bunch of Gosford Park. Anyway, the ring just fits Kvothe. Which is probably something that you wouldn't know or notice or be told in a book unless it were important. And I'm curious to see if this will pay off in the future. They're your secrets. Who else would it fit? How much more does Ari know? I wonder. I think that Ari knows a great deal that would be very hard to put into understandable words. <laughs> Another thing cementing my thought about Ari versus the moon. When speaking about the mother owl, she is fearless. She has a face like a wicked moon. There have been a lot of mentions of Ari disliking the moon. But there's the moon imagery around Denna. There's also the moon imagery around that urn with the Chandrian. Right, had the lunar phases on it. I wonder if there's anything that she might know. It's entirely possible that she is aware of some lunar connection to the Chandrian, which explains her revulsion at it. Quoth asks his question, Would you mind showing me the underthing? And Ari makes adorable little sexual jokes, but says yes. This is a reminder that Ari is in fact older than Kvothe. Yes. As much as it's easy to think of her as a child, she's actually an adult who is just very childlike. We get our first little hint about Foxen, the light that she carries, which if you read the slow regard of silent things, you'll get a little more of an explanation about her little blue light that she carries. And the under thing is mostly, at the beginning of it, exactly what I had expected. Tunnels and pipes. Pipes for sewage, water, steam, and coal gas. Great black pig iron pipes a man could crawl through. Small bright brass pipes, no bigger around than your thumb. But as you go along within the underthing, it morphs and changes from the round tunnels to squared off rooms and hallways. There's furniture down here. There's formerly 
inhabitable rooms down here. There's a room that is massive and full of machines. This whole time, there have not really been machines mentioned. At most, you have things like a chill chest and whatever is made in the fishery. You have clocks. But I mean, like, actual, like, machine-type things are not listed as things that both ever interacts with. This all ties into my theory that the Kingkiller Chronicle is just the very, very, very far future of the Duniverse. <laughs> and that Temerant is Arrakis. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that you have that theory. It's adorable. I approached an iron block as big as a farmer's cottage and broke off a single flake of rust, large as a dinner plate. Underneath was nothing but more rust. There are green pillars covered in green verdigris. Verdigree. Verdigree. Thank you. Green verdigree that was so thick that it looked like moss. Many of the huge machines were beyond identifying, looking more melted than rusted. But I saw something that may have been a water wheel that was three stories tall. Now, one of the Chandrian decays metal, and that was the first place my mind went, talking about how the rusted out metal looked more melted than rusted out. There's clearly been something here that is more than just the casual, benign neglect that one would expect in this sort of situation. It sounds like this was at some point the site of something cataclysmic, something unnatural, and I'm curious to find out what that will be. Very clearly, Elodin has stated that the current university was built on top of the former university. I don't think that that's a metaphor. I don't think it's figurative. I think it's literal, much the way that Seattle was built upon Seattle. Exactly. Like if you go down to Old Pioneer Square, you can take the underground tour and go down underneath to see old Seattle. The Seattle underground. It's a lot of fun. There's tours and things. Don't go by yourself. So I think that puts us in an excellent spot here to talk about your frenemos. Absolutely. Who did you pick? Ari. Cool. Mostly because I thought that her joke was adorable. She makes an offhanded sexual comment after Quoth asks to see the underthing and actually gets him. Tricks him into believing that <laughs> she's actually offended. And it takes him a second of going, wait a second, was that a joke out of you? And I love it. But on top of that, she somehow hard cooked some eggs without cooking equipment, which I think she probably held them in the steam from a pipe. Yeah, that could fit. She's definitely clever. I love that she is so self-sufficient and that she is trusting of Quoth without being naive. I think that's a good pick. Thank you. All right, and so now it's time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and talk about an interesting fact here. It is your turn. It is. So the week that we recorded this, Eddie Van Halen passed away. He is one of my heroes, and in many ways, I think of him as something of a patron saint of our podcast. And I like to think that if Eddie lived in Temerant, he and Quoth would spend their nights jamming together and their days working out all sorts of weird little inventions in the fishery. Because in addition to being a musical genius capable of picking up you know, new instruments and techniques on the fly without any formal education, much like Quoth, he was also something of an inventor with actually several patents to his name. Oh, really? Yeah. So as far as how he got his start... This is something that he picked up from his father, Jan, who is a jazz saxophonist and clarinetist. It started when Jan came home late one night from a gig after having too much to drink, only to find that their neighbor had left a U-Haul trailer parked in front of their home's garage entrance in the back alleyway. Without stopping to think about the consequences, the elder Van Halen tried to move the offending trailer with just his hands, 
only for the hitch to fall in his hand, ultimately resulting in a lost finger. So this accident could have been the end of Jan's musical career, as he suddenly lacked a finger to seal the valve on his clarinet. However, he had another trick up his sleeve. Saxophone valves don't need a finger over them to work, so Jan just switched out the valve on his clarinet for his sax valve, which actually solved the problem. And this taught young Eddie that he didn't have to accept the way that things came from the factory and freed him up to tinker. Now, because the Van Halens didn't have a lot of money, Eddie ended up constructing his own instruments piecemeal from B-stock components purchased at a discount from local luthiers. When young Eddie wanted a guitar that could have a Gibson Les Paul's distinctive roar, he found that he lacked the funds required to purchase one of those expensive instruments. I mean, like, today a Gibson is going to go for at least 1500 bucks. That's a lot of money. So instead, he bought a Fender Stratocaster clone body from Wayne Charvel on the cheap, and he bought B-Stock here. So this was a body that was deemed unusable at full price, and he paid what would probably be about 50 bucks today. And then he carved out the pickup cavity to fit a Gibson PAF humbucker pickup instead of the usual single coil, and then coated the pickup in wax to help it fit into the neck cavity correctly and also affect the way it picked up resonance from the strings. He didn't have a router or anything, so he just had to use a screwdriver and a hammer as a makeshift chisel. So he just carved out this area, put in the new pickup, wired it up himself. Instead of a normal plastic pit guard, because he didn't have one that fit, he ended up cutting one out of an old vinyl record. <laughs> like, this entire thing was something he cobbled together on his own, and, you know, he got an unfinished fender neck, and this would eventually become known as his famous Frankenstrat, because it was constantly evolving with different parts, different paint jobs. Like, it started out as a black guitar, and then he decided, no, he wanted something different, so he wrapped it up with a bunch of gaffer tape, and then painted it white, removed the gaffer tape, which made the famous black stripes, then later, he would end up doing another set of gaffer tapes over top of that, and then paint it red, which would be his iconic 5150 paint job. All of this is stuff that he did just as a tinkerer. So he would go on to register patents for a number of inventions of his own, including designs for a wearable stringed instrument stand. So his idea was he wanted something that would let a player use both of their hands to play up and down the neck almost like it was a piano while standing up. And if you check out the drawings for this, like on the patent, it's pretty awesome. Because it's definitely Eddie Van Halen on there rocking out with this weird stand thing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Check it out. He also designed a variant Floyd Rose tremolo system that would let a player perform the dynamic bends and dive bombs that he was famous for without affecting the tuning of your instrument. He also ended up designing variant headstocks that would help prevent, again, issues with string tension and things like that. So like, he was all over the place finding all sorts of unique solutions to his own problems. And that sort of spirit of inventiveness is really, I think, key to understanding him. And I think that he and Kvothe would have had a grand old time together. I agree with you. I think he'd have loved the fishery. Absolutely. So now it's time for us to share our seven words. I believe you have the books this time? I believe you are correct, sir. All right. What do you have? All right. So there's a whole bunch of them. It turns out that Elodin also brings them like no one's business. You call the name of the wind. Taberlin knew the names of many things. Names are the shape of the world. Confused? Come walk with me. I'll explain. The archives are Lauren's domain, his kingdom. The nature of names cannot be described. Words are pale shadows of forgotten names. So yes, there's a lot. But my seven words this week come from Ari. That is why owls make poor heroes. <laughs> when she and both are talking about the mother owl, that has moved into the under thing. And she says that owls are wise. They are careful and patient. Wisdom precludes boldness. I like that. That is why owls make poor heroes. I also can't help but wonder if that's a Watchmen reference. 
wouldn't put it past Pat. Awesome. And now I believe it is your turn to share seven words from life. Yeah. So going back to our Van Halen feeling here, upon hearing of Eddie's passing, I was immediately called to mind some words of wisdom that were shared to me by an old supervisor of mine. And this is how he signed off his emails. Consider listening to Van Halen before Coldplay. This is some of the best advice I ever heard. <laughs> and yeah, seriously, if you're thinking about listening to Coldplay, slow your roll, stop, and then listen to Van Halen instead. You will be a better person. And with that, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 88 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of desaturation. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Toss a coin to your witcher, dear Liza, dear Liza. Toss a coin to your witcher, dear Liza. A coin. <laughs>